Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and we are back live, as we are every Monday, and I want to welcome each and every one of you back. Joining us from Texas is our friend, good guy, Jeff Kopsetta, and of course, Henry Sledge. Jeff, Henry, how y'all doing tonight? Really good. Yeah, hanging out with you guys every week. Every week. Yes, sir. Every week, every week, every week. Oh boy, it's been a it's been a busy week. My brother's coming in town. He's actually drove from Vegas. He arrived sometime tonight. I got the roofing company coming out finally. It's been since last September. I'm finally getting the roof replaced after a hurricane. I'm putting up a lot of background noise, sorry I got distracted, and I'm getting new internet. So if you guys are tuning in and there's issue with the audio, it's because the fine people of Comcast throttle my bandwidth because I use too much of it. And so we're moving over to Fiber Optic tomorrow. So i got a busy day coming. Hopefully next Monday, if there's any sound issues tonight, that'll all be resolved. But enough of my complaining. Jeff, what's going on in your side of the world? Well, man, I don't really have anything to complain about. <laughs> um, you know, just going and blowing, doing, doing what we do here and... And uh, look forward to talking about it and hanging out with you guys tonight. And, um, you know, been been hearing back from a lot of our listeners, which is really cool, really encouraging. Got some great messages over this past week. So, yeah, got some cool stuff to talk about. Oh, there I am. Fantastic. I, I actually muted this to turn up the volume on YouTube to make sure the audio is coming through. So that's been checked in real time. Henry, what's going on in your side of the world, fella? Uh, I'm doing good. It's just a pleasure to watch you keep the plate spinning with all your producer stuff, man. <laughs> I just, I'm, it's I, it's so cool to see it. I don't see how you do it. It's it's something. <laughs> it's all I can say. It's something. What are you drinking right now? I gotta ask. I've been meaning to ask. <laughs> you can take the boy it's out, out of the mason jar. <laughs> you can take the boy out of the trailer. We can't take the trailer out of the boy. I'm drinking wine out of a mason jar. <laughs> I like it. What kind of wine is it? <sighs> Uh, true. Uh, I keep saying true crimes, real, real crimes. Um, I don't know. It's one you get at the grocery store for like 10 bucks. It has the mug shots from like the 1930s yeah. and 1914. Though. Nice. Yeah. True. I like it. And well, you true like, crimes. I think. Yeah. True crimes. I think it's called true crimes. Yeah. And, and if you get the app on your cell phone and you shine it at the bottle, the, the, um, mug shot actually animates and starts giving the story of the person who got arrested. It's a whole thing, but I never did the app, but it's 10 bucks. It's good. And, it fits in a mason jar. So there you go. <laughs> I guess anything fits in a mason jar if you try hard enough. That's a lesson for the kids. <laughs> so you yeah. posted some. Uh, were they updated? Were they? Were, did you post more photos from the event you talked about last week, or did you have another event that just rolled through, Jeff? I think I saw a couple more photos coming up. I probably posted some stuff from leftover maybe from the air show i'm trying i'm trying to remember yeah and your son i saw posted some stuff of him and his airborne stuff on instagram as well yeah was that from the same okay that's actually that's a different event so yeah i'm glad you mentioned that um unfortunately i could not be there this time but logan got to go in my place which is really cool him and uh his his best friend reenactor buddy uh from high school here so yeah, is that the one that got folks, to ride the uh, the plane in his German uniform and sliding around with the hobbitsail yes. boots on? Yep, yeah, the one of the last yeah. uh, group of of riders to ride in Texas Raiders. Yeah, um, 
So, uh, yeah, it's a back-to-back uh, from Blue Bonnet Air Show. The following week is always a, a, an event around here called Magi, and, and a lot of our listeners from, from Texas will know that Magi is a really cool museum. It stands for Museum of the American GI, and it's on private land. This guy, I have no idea how many acres he's got, but he just built this huge metal building, and he's got a really great little uh, PX in there. Always has some great souvenirs and books and things to buy. Uh, he's got a really cool, I, and I don't know if it was a temporary display or not, but last time I was there, he had dog tags hanging that represented every guy that was KIA wow. in Vietnam. Just, mm. I mean, what a 58,000 <clears> some odd sets of dog tags. It was a really, really powerful exhibit. And then you kind of go out to the rest of this huge, Almost like a hangar, really, or, or like a barn dominium High type tunnel. building. And uh, yeah, just half tracks and wow. Shermans and M5 Stewarts. And he's got a running French Renault tank from World War One. He's got an AH1 Cobra hanging from the rafters. Like, basically, he would have what stuff. we would have if money was no object. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, it's one thing to just have really nice looking vehicles curated in a building, mm-hmm. but. Uh, once a year, this event here this past uh, weekend, he rolls up the doors and everything drives out. And so you've got all these vendors, uh, and it's right there in your college station. So if anybody knows, you know, Texas A&M, it's that area there. So the A&M Corps cadets come out. They'll set up paintball ranges for kids. There's all kinds of vendors with things to buy, uniforms, equipment, et cetera, you know, the things that you would see at a living history event. Uh, and then later in the day, they do a huge battle, and it's really cool because they kind of do a parade of vehicles uh, first, and the guy that owns the place, he'll narrate it. He's got a little microphone. Everybody can sit in bleachers or hop up on the hood of your Jeep or whatever, And um, but they kind of give you a little background of each vehicle as they drive by, right? The half-tracks, the Stewarts, the Shermans, the M10s, the M18s, you know, and then the German vehicles. There'll be Schwimmwagens out there and German half-tracks and things like that, and um, then they kind of get set up and they kind of set the stage for what you're about to see. And then it's just 150 dudes with way too many blanks and too much fun <laughs> just going at it. And, you know, they've kind of set, you know, it's coordinated, of course. So they, there's little set vignettes that are happening on the battlefield that are kind of, you know, pre-rehearsed or whatever. Um, so you see this, um, this amazing display of just infantry and, you know, armor support and artillery pieces. Um, but he's also got a really nice World War One battlefield that he built just behind that, and and they'll, they'll do two different types of reenactments throughout the weekend. It's open for the weekend there, Saturday and Sunday. So, just a really really cool living history event. It's very popular, uh, and again, you know, College Station is in that area of Texas where it's you're, you're kind of two hours to Dallas, Houston, Austin. You know, just those big cities. So it pulls a lot of people. Um, you know, and you can, you can get on there and you can apply if you want to be a, a, a tank driver, a tank gunner, a tank commander, you know, there's just this application process. So he pulls a lot of, you know, living, you know, guys from other living history sure. units, Patton, Patton is always out there with his third army. And I know there's that sixth, um, armored recon troop or something, uh, sixth cab, whatever it is. I know some of the guys over there and, um, you know, just just people from everywhere um, going in their ETO um, uniforms, wolves, and and having fun. So yeah, Logan got to go out in his in his 
Pathfinder uniform, which if you've seen the picture, man, he's got a heck of an impression mm -hmm. for, for being 16 years old. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he's really narrowed his focus to 507th um, Regiment. Uh, so he knows the drop zone. They're just west of the Murderette River where they jumped in. And they, they hit their DZ. They hit on time, which is kind of interesting. You don't really hear a whole lot when you talk about the 506th. Yeah. You know, missed drops all over Normandy, but 507th hit their target on time, and and uh, you know they're pathfinders, so you know setting up those Eureka beacons, and um, so yeah, he, he was kind of walking around, and and um, you know I think somebody had heard his name or his last name, and like hey, you know Jeff Cup said, like yeah, it's my dad, you know. That's <laughs> and, cool. Uh, I'm, I'm happy he got to experience that. Oh yeah. Yeah, so it, it was really cool, and he actually ran into a few reenactors that that worked with me when I was still over, you know, at the Nimitz. We've mm -hmm. got one guy; he's he's active army right now, and and Logan recognized him. he's a real tall guy, right? Really tall. So I always called him too tall. So Logan said, "Hey, too tall," and he came up and goes, "Only Jeff Copsetta calls me that. You know him?" <laughs> Logan's like, uh, "Yeah, it's my dad." <laughs> you know, uh, so it was really cool just to hear, you know, oh yeah, your dad's on what's the scuttlebutt podcast? Yeah, it's awesome. So. Yeah, just to hear stuff like that um, at these living history events. And Don, I know you, you know, you get to do it. I think more than I do, and you've been obviously doing this podcast a lot longer. So I know you've you've had those experiences. But um, you know, it's really nice to hear words kind of getting out. Yeah, and we're appreciated by these guys that, and we appreciate them working hard, putting these uniforms together, these impressions, doing the research. Spending, you know, my gosh, the amounts of money that that we're dropping on eBay and mm -hmm. wheeling and dealing, and it's just, it's cool. It's a really cool community to be a part of. You know, one of the hard things down here, which probably super cool, there with the guy owning his own land. But like when we're down here doing living history events, most of it's at a park or a museum or some sort of private, you know, public owned land where you know you're lucky. Maybe you can dig a foxhole more more than often than not. And I always think of this. Like the coolest living history photo I'd ever seen. It was World War One, and it was just at a park. It was at a property somewhere, probably over in Europe. Guy was doing World War One, and he literally set up a circle of sandbags, and then brought in. I'm assuming he brought in because it's nice grass, and then he's just literally sitting in a, I don't know, ten foot diameter circle of sandbags of just mud and clay, just like. You can tell it's like four inches deep, and it's realistic, you know, the, the crap that those guys fought in. And so he spent his weekend just sitting in this mud, giant mud puddle to recreate that environment. And that's so cool to see that, but it's so hard to do in real time because most places won't let you destroy their soil or make that kind of a mess on their property. So everybody always has the fantasies of going out and digging foxholes and, and making a big mess, but at most places they won't let you uh, crack that <laughs> crack that shovel. I can see that soil. really cramping your style. I mean, if you guys are trying to put together an event, you know, with with accuracy and a, and a feeling to it, man. I mean, you're. I could see that really limiting you. Yeah, the best you can do because you can clean up it easily is like obviously most of us have tents set up. You make kind of like the bivouac area. Mm -hmm. Just be a complete absolute slob when it comes to your tin cans and your your empty gear and all that crap. You just eat your peaches and just drop the can because that's what you would have done in real life. It's not like you would have collected and went and put it in the trash can out in the jungle. It's like mm -hmm. kick it in the pile. And then at the end of the weekend, you just kind of muster it up and throw away. But yeah, um, I was at a couple years back, I was at an event where they had a tree line and they let some people, you know, some of the younger cats want to sleep in a foxhole. And so I was dumb enough to let somebody borrow my e-tool, which was a reproduction, which 
If you don't know, reproductions are not made to the standards of original or even a shovel you buy at Lowe's. <laughs> it's a long story short. It came back with the handle snapped in half and like uh, the, the I was like, oh, God, that's What does a reproduction cost of one of those? About as much as an original. <laughs> Seriously, really? they're about sixty, seventy dollars, depending on where yeah. you get them at. And uh so I actually I kept the spade off that one, then I bought a new one, and then I was at an event somewhere and someone had a whole stack of the shortened just the replacement handles, like for the airborne. And so I bought a T handle shovel. I just got to find an air correct rivet. I don't want to put like a, nut, a bolt and a nut through it because they have their rivets. So I got to find a, a air correct rivet, which I think what I'll do is I've been thinking about because I have so many damn M1 helmets that need restored. It would call me a, cost me a small fortune to send them out. But I do know mm -hmm. uh, Jay Murray sells the the equipment and even the punch. So I might get some of that stuff and re redoing some of my helmets and maybe um use that see if that punch will work on a industrial size rivet to put the handle back in there but um i haven't done anything down here i had somebody reach out to me ask me say like, hey are you going to this event in april and i had to tell him and i, and I feel bad because he lives in naples he lives 45 minutes further south than me but i just told him i said man with the way everything's going with paying you know deductibles on two cars plus my roof and then my monthly nut going up with insurance raises like this year is not going to be the year for me driving three, four hours in a V8 truck. And, you know, be honest with you, the biggest, a lot of the biggest expense of living history after you invest in your gear is the food and drink to, to support your ass for three days. You know, you're out in the sun. So you got to buy cases of water and all that stuff. So I just told him, I said, hopefully next year, but right now I just all, any extra income I'm going is, you know, getting all this crap. And, you know, we're still suffering from a hurricane down here, which sounds crazy, but like, my brother's coming down here from Vegas because we were initially supposed to basically gut my dad's house and refit it. And so I was planning on doing drywall work this weekend, but luckily my dad got a little bit of a FEMA check-in. So now we're just going to go there and put the the outlets in, and he's going to pay someone else to put the drywall up. But, uh, yeah, like this whole area is just now really starting to get construction and everything going back from suffering through the hurricane, which, by the way, I don't know if we have people in Mississippi and – in Georgia, but our hearts go out to the people in those towns affected by those tornadoes. Seeing that footage is heartbreaking. At least down here in hurricane country, our houses are built out of cinder block with rebar and, and concrete poured down the center for hurricane codes. Those poor bastards are living in woodstick houses and there's nothing left. I don't know if you guys seen any of that footage coming out of Mississippi or Georgia, but yeah. Those tornadoes just annihilated those areas. It's just sad. Oh, we had it was an interesting night. It it went north of us, but we were you know, we were preparing to batten the hatches down the other night. Yeah. But like I said, it, we, we were lucky on this one. It went north. Yeah. I heard it was a big, big guy. I heard it was pretty damn wide. And so, um, yeah. <clears throat> thoughts and prayers to all them. Real quick, I want to give a shout out to our listeners. Like, somebody went on a shopping spree over like the last week. We've been moving some t shirts and we want to thank you guys a lot. Um, there's not a whole hell of a lot of, um, you know, margin and that stuff, and we're not trying to, to make bank off T-shirts. We're more interested in the fact you guys are, you know, grassroots advertising because, I mean, that's what shirts are truly doing. It's getting the word out there, spreading the word. I've had people comment about my hat. What's that? Or the logo on the back of my truck. I'm sure Jeff's gotten out once or twice about the sticker on his truck. And so for you guys buying the shirts, I hope you enjoy them. There's, there's definitely a ton of them on there. we got years' worth of shirts that we just keep putting up there. Uh, just keep in mind they are print-to-order. When you order those, I don't have a warehouse full of shirts. That's why we use that service. 
uh, they are print the order. So what they do is you put your order in, and they'll wait three or four days to see if any other orders come in before they go rigging up an entire machine and print one shirt. And then they'll try to, you know, they will, but there's like a, a four or five day gap, and then they'll print all of them out at one time and then ship them. So if you order a shirt, there is a little bit of a turnaround time, but that's why. It helps keep costs down here and uh, get shirts out to you guys. And that's what allows us to have such a wide catalog of different logos because we're not, you know, ordering them up front and having them sitting around here. It's you choose the shirt you want, the size you want, the color you want, the quality of T-shirt, put in the order, and they'll, they'll ship it directly to you. And uh, there's some mugs on there, the hats. I think there's even – I put some towels up there too. I haven't even checked out. But thank you guys so much for ordering those. Um, if you want to support the channel, you can also uh, go over to – WTSPWWII.com. Click on the Patreon link. It's a dollar a month. Um, you can sign up, subscribe that way. Or to be honest with you, if you, if, you know, I'm sitting here talking about how times are tough right now. Just go, uh, go watch your YouTube videos. Doesn't cost you a thing, and um, that goes to help support the show that way too. And we also want to hear from you. It's been a, a little bit of a dry week for the email. I don't know if the postman's tied up. You know, putting everything on microfish or what but the uh the mail call letters have been a little slow this week so we want to hear from you send us an email to mail call at wtspwwii.com or you can send it directly to our instagram page and our facebook page i can't believe i went completely blank on that show we've been excited about about the british special rogue heroes rogue heroes jeff you got a jeep how much Wind blockage, do you suppose <laughs> that grill blocks from your radiator? It's a weird question. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, here's here's why I bring it up. <laughs> because the British Special Forces cut out all those supports except for one. And so when you watch and, and I bring it up too, because one, I noticed on the show, but since the show kind of got popular, I've been seeing more photos of people's recreation of those Jeeps. On it on Facebook now, and they're they're cutting those supports out, and they're painting the whole damn things brown. And the only thing I can imagine, the only reason they cut those supports out was to increase wind flow because they're driving through the desert. But I can't imagine. I don't know how much increase it would help. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, from from my perspective, so you know, my Jeep only gets so much air going through the grill because it's my truck towing it. <laughs> You got a trailer queen, do you? So, so, well, it's not even on a trailer. I have a hitch that it just bolts onto the bumper. No, and no, then no. Hooks on. And I saw that photo. You got to tell people that's the knockdown <laughs> piano wire from the road. Right, right. Keeps you from getting yeah. decapitated. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's just my little air cord Jeep. I mean, it's gonna have. It's gonna be so stripped down that it's gonna look so unique because everybody that I know that has a Jeep. They've got gun mounts. They've got eight musette bags hanging mm. off of it, and jerry cans and spare mm. tires and ammo cans. And like, mine's just gonna be like, hey, I'm gonna fit ten guys mm. in in an air crew uniform to hop on and drive from briefing to the bomber. Like that's what mine's gonna represent. Well, so. that's usually what happens to Jeep drivers at large scale living history events, especially at airports. Hey, Jeff, I'm in the parking lot. I got a, cra a lot of crap to carry or bivouacs two miles away. <laughs> and you're just constantly right. picking people up all day long because that's what <laughs> we would do. We'd call Chris or uh, one of the other guys, like when we'd go to Sun and Fun and all that. It's like, I'm not dragging all this crap a mile <laughs> from the parking lot to where we're set up on the runway. And he, yeah. he, he would come and schlep you and all your gear back and forth. So that's what yeah. happens with a lot of those Jeeps. But uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're uh, getting it, you know, 
We're getting there. Getting it's a process. It's process. It's not the only old vehicle I got to maintain. So it's, it's you know, I got to pick and choose the time that I have and what's the next event, what do I need it for, and which one's which. And, yeah, but it's a cool problem to have for sure. But um, uh, I was telling Henry when we first started, and, and Don, I haven't had a chance to, to really ask you this, and you probably know, right? I mean, of, of the three of us here, you guys, I feel, have seen – I mean, obviously, Henry's in a different category, but when it comes to the to the Pacific Mini Series, in the box, Don, I think you've probably seen it more more than I have. Mm-hmm. Um, I would assume mm-hmm. so because I've probably only seen it maybe six times. I think I watched it six times before I got the box set as a birthday present one year. So no, I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. I've seen it quite a few. There times. There you go. And and I don't watch like an episode here, an episode like I'm. If I'm going to watch it, it's going to be you mm-hmm. know over the course of like a week. Um, so it's a year. I watch it probably once a year, you mm-hmm. know, unless it's like something special. Like my brother, when I went up to Jersey that one time to see my brother, I was like, all right, dude, you're a former Marine. You've never seen this. We're going to sit here. <laughs> we're going to make a bunch of, well, we're going to drink wine first. We're gonna Adam drink Mason jar, of, of course. That's how we do it here. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to drink a ton of coffee and we're going to watch the Pacific. And nothing else is going to stop us. By like, the way, if you're sh- listening to this podcast and maybe your uncle owns a vineyard, if we can get together and come up with Mason Jar Wine, that'd be a great brand for us here at WTSP. It'd be the WTSP Mason Jar <laughs> Wine. You know, we can uh, work something out. But yeah, so you, you get your popcorn, your wine, and you guys put the cucumbers on your eyes and you put your hairs up in a towel. <laughs> Little exfoliation. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Uh, so I've been talking about it for the past few weeks. I'm taking it slow. I'm still reading with the old breed. I'm in no rush to finish it. There's times where, and you know, right. So, you know, all the distractions I've got here, right. All the, everybody <laughs> running around and yeah. there's a new puppy. And so I'm like, man, I feel like I've read this same paragraph 14 times. <laughs> That's because I have. Right. Um, somehow my anyway, dog, by the way, found my bookmark. Carrie's like, whose bookmark is this? Like, what the fuck? Where do, how do you find that? So my new, the new Boston's like into everything. Like he, he found my missing bookmark. So did he eat the bookmark? No, he's sorry, just, Jeff. He I don't just, even mean he to just drugged you. it outside where he takes okay. everything. If you're missing anything in the house, go look out in the backyard. It's probably sitting there, but go ahead. Puppies. We yeah, love puppies yeah, here on the what's sense. the scuttlebutt podcast. So Ooh, real quick, before we right. get back to it, yep. can you make dog tags for our dogs? You got, you have a stamping yeah. machine, right? Yeah. yeah. You need to make us some WTSP Ooh. dog tags for our dogs. And one for Ooh. me, too. That'd be cool. Yeah, y'all send me the info, whatever y'all want on it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'll do it. I'll knock it out next time I'm out there, for sure. Sweet. Um, I don't know why I didn't think of that sooner. Golly. Um, some dog let's see, where was I? So, yeah, all right. Dogs, kids. Watching the Pacific. One read a paragraph, same paragraph of time, wine, cucumbers, exfoliant. <laughs> Pedicures, manicures. Repeated interruptions by Don. <laughs> we're, we're used to it. We're used Which to we it. have All to right. forgive because he's the producer. So exactly. he gets to he's do what he wants. I've been downgraded to the producer. Well, you're Producer's the, one step up from an intern. I should know. I was I'm a producer sorry. for six years. What, what what would be the exalted title you, you would prefer? I'm sorry. I didn't host? <laughs> I mean, look at my Okay, host. host. All right. I'm sorry. Go oh, ahead. man. Okay. So, yeah. Let me let me spit it out before I lose it again. <laughs> so I just saw that our good friend, you know, said. Freddie Joe Farnsworth just celebrated a birthday. Aww, so he's old. Um, he is. I, I I texted him and I said, "Man, you are gracefully transitioning from USMC to AARP." 
<laughs> if you want to know how old he is, go back and watch the box set of uh, Band of Brothers. You can see him as a young guy at the boot camp yelling at all the actors. Right, right. So I saw where, uh, you know, in the Pacific, I think it was We Happy Few that, that posted on, on social media uh, about him playing or portraying uh, Lieutenant uh, Stumpy Stanley. Stumpy Stanley, yeah. And it kind of like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Something's not lining up in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm at the part in your dad's book where uh-huh. uh they've they've come back from Paleloo. They're they're in between Paleloo and Okinawa. So just read the forward uh-huh. for the Okinawa portion, right? Okay. And uh <clears throat> so just dealing with all of that, geez, that healing or supposed to be a healing process for him. Uh the the part where he just dug Men at War book by Ernest Hemingway out of the trash can. Right. Okay. So, guys, and you're probably going to laugh in my face, and you have every right to. <laughs> but the lieutenant that the first thing, the first line is to your your father when they're standing there getting their grapefruit juice from the, the Red Cross nurses. Right. And he's whatever. He's like, all right, guys. Keep you moving on, on you've had your look. Yeah. yeah, you've had your look. Right. Guys, I thought. That was Haldane's replacement as the company commander. I thought that's who Lieutenant Mack was. No. Mm-hmm. He's just the guy whose job it is to make sure enough the guys don't get out of line with the Red Cross nurses. Well, he's the officer that you see for the rest of the series. Is it? Oh well they so Mac was actually kind of a they did a little bit of that character compression thing there, Jeff. Um, okay. I know, like the, like that scene where they're getting off and the, the girls are handing them the juice. Yes, I remember now. Yeah. I mean, that really happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. They, right. they they filmed it just the way it happened. Uh, the lieutenant, because <clears throat> actually that's a story dad told me when, he, when I was a kid. You know, okay, you've had your look. Come on, Sonny, move out. Which he called him Sonny in real life in the book, as you right, probably right. just saw. Um. That was not Mac in real life, okay? But as we know, you know, they because they had to use that character uh, for a couple of things, uh, and especially on Okinawa. Have you gotten to Okinawa yet? Not yet. Okay. okay. Yeah. There, you'll come to another lieutenant, uh, or maybe – see, here's the thing, and this is what's confusing me. I, I've got to go back and re- – I'm pressing through on my project, as you all know, but – there was another guy that my dad called Shadow. And and I can't remember if Shadow was in with the old breed. I know the name does not that must okay. be that must have been one that was pulled out of the original. Because that, I think that Shadow name does not was, ring a bell at all. Yeah, Shadow was a guy who's actually named George Loveday. Um uh, not at all a very popular officer at all. Um and there's a lot in the unpublished stuff that goes into that, and I'll touch on some of that. But Mac, Mac had the bravado, and he he was the one who was always talking about, you know, the first Jap I see, I'm going to charge mm-hmm. him with my K bar, my 45, and you know, Snafu and my dad, and all the guys who've been through, they're they're just rolling their eyes like, you got to be kidding me, man. And and but he goes on to say Mac really wasn't a bad guy. He was he actually ended up being a pretty good officer, but he just had to kind of he, he had to get broken, you know, but. Um, well, a lot of and, that and too is to build up their own self confidence so they can, you know, perform right. in the way they think they should. Right. So, 
this guy, this name Mac, it, it, he mm-hmm. doesn't really exist in real life. No, he did exist in real life. Oh. But what um, Henry's saying is they use the actor to play the two roles just to get that one yes. scene out of the way. So Jeff, he, you know, in part, I'm sorry, Don, go, no, ahead. go ahead. In part nine on Okinawa, when, so they see, you see the Japanese charging down the hill and you see Sledge with the M1, you know, wait, wait, they're close. That, and then you've got in Kathy, the machine gunner, you know, um, they did a lot of like, and they did this with some of Leckie's characters too. There was a lot of like combining characters and taking mm-hmm. things that happened to somebody else, but putting it on a character they had, as we've talked about, you know, just because you can't have 20 damn named people yeah. per episode. But the, the officer who comes along and I sent you up here, observing you up here with a goddamn sidearm. And you just gave away our position. You I was know, here to kill that, Jeff. So it doesn't matter what kind of weapon I use. That's it. Exactly. That, so they've got Mac doing that. But in real right. life, it was Lieutenant Loveday who actually, or Shadow, who came along the line when they were emplaced up near Half Moon Hill on a little escarpment. And he just came along the line just berating and cursing all these guys as they're firing at the Japanese coming out of this culvert. And Well, I mean, he's also the one that, you know, gives the fire mission that your dad calls to drop the mortar in on the the house with the caved in roof. I need a round to the right of the, the house with the tomb. Yeah. 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 Right. He, and he's also the one that threatens the court martial. And the next time they touch a Japanese yep. prisoner. So, I mean, he's, he's around so much. He's the only officer that they really, uh, that really gets any kind of light on, on mm-hmm. Okinawa. So I just assumed this is Akak's replacement because right. I don't remember I don't so I don't remember and I and I, I feel bad saying this on the air if, if Freddie listens to this like sorry dude like I don't remember you in the Pacific I don't no, remember his scene was he had one line and he talked yeah. about when he's on the show basically or Freddie talked about it. I guess when Freddie was supposed to he's basically a guy who relays the mission to um to um Akak and then Akak relays it like Freddie it was like a literally three line well, no Akak was gone at that point remember uh, Akak was killed oh yeah yeah power. yeah but it was anyhow it was like a three line just it was real quick yeah so. The thing was, Jeff, I, th- I think... Because Stumpy's the XO. Yeah, but he ended, up, he ended up taking over K Company. I think they had to use Mac because they wanted to show an officer doing just some... Just being an asshole. Mm-hmm. And that was accurate, right? But Stumpy Stanley was very highly thought of. Lieutenant Stanley was very well thought of and a respected guy and a respected replacement for Captain Haldane. But... I'm like you guys. I didn't even realize Freddie Joe had been in the Pacific until I circled back around to all this and started really watching it and then getting to know him. And I'm like, oh man, you mean that was you in part nine? Like I said, this is it. Where's the rest of you guys? Like I said, this is it. You know, and, and like you just were remembering, Don, Freddie Joe didn't even want to do that scene, but he was the only one who could even yell loud enough to be heard over the tanks and the Amtraks. Yeah. And so he's like, okay, fine, I'll do it. But yeah, I mean, Lieutenant Stanley, if they had given Okinawa more airtime, which they probably wanted to, and then the budget limitations just cut it shorter than they wanted to be, then probably Lieutenant Stanley would have had more of a role, You know, I think. That's kind of a good hypothetical mind game. It's like, I was going to bring this up later. So the new project that Hanks and them have been working on for the Air Corps, it appears to mm-hmm. be a Disney Plus project project now 
It doesn't look like it's going on HBO. I th- I think I saw it, Apple TV, isn't it? Apple. Oh, sorry, Apple yeah. TV. Yeah, I, yeah Apple TV. I get them yeah. all confused. But I knew anyway. HBO did not want it. Well, I don't, see, that was my question. I didn't know if they didn't want it or if they couldn't match the budget because the streaming services make so much more money compared to the cable services because a lot more people are, quote-unquote, cutting the cord. And so yeah. that was a fun, kind of a fun thought is if the streaming services were around back then mm-hmm. and there was more money being thrown around to get new projects, would... The, either the Band of Brothers or the Pacific been either longer or had more bigger budget because the money that was would be available to do it like the well, new ones now. I, I can remember when the Pacific came out in 2010, everybody was comparing. And, and look, there, like we've talked about on this show before, guys, uh, yeah, was, there, there was a lot of antipathy toward the Pacific because people are like, well, it wouldn't like Band of Brothers. Well, you know, Band of Brothers came out, and people got the box set, and they, they watched it on TV. There was no streaming in 2000, mm-hmm. right? Well, or 01, whenever it came out. But when the Pacific came out, streaming was starting to get to be a thing. And so I remember some of the naysayers, I mean, people who were just panning it and really not wanting it to succeed, um, saying, well, you know, the first, like, the average number of viewers per episode with Band of Brothers was X number of million. No, it's because less people Pac- had HBO. Right. And in the Pacific, those numbers were a lot lower. And you had people coming back saying, well, look, man, people are not, yeah, they, they're not subscribing to HBO and watching this like they did 10 years ago mm-hmm. at that time, 10 years before. Because you know, now you, you have streaming. It's just people are consuming it in a different way. And I, you also got to remember at the time, HBO was the pretty much only cable show do, uh, channel doing the Deadwoods, the, uh, mm-hmm. oh, the, People want to kill me. The mobster show, <laughs> oh, the uh, Sopranos. Sopranos, Oz, all the, they were they were groundbreaking. Yeah. with all that stuff. Oz, yeah. the Sopranos, Band of Brothers, um, Rome, which killed Deadwood. All they were the only channel out there doing that kind of work. And so, since they were the only ones doing it, that's where you had to go to see it. And so, their subscriber base. Well, I mean, they, for the longest time, from like the seventies until probably the mid two thousands. HBO was the premium cable station that you had to get if you wanted to see anything, whether it was Star Wars, all that stuff. It was on HBO. That was the top of the stack for cable premium TV channels. And and by the time that Pacific rolled out, more and more people were cutting or early people were cutting the cords, but now you had other stations doing the that t- type of work. And and by the way, when it's not the Band of Brothers, well, you know what is? The Band of Brothers, so go watch that. <laughs> and then, you know, and I, let I will say, I think a lot of those people, a lot of that negativity worked itself out. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of those people became converts, me included. Yeah. As we have discussed, and I've discussed it with other people. Jeff, I was, we were kind of jumping around there. Did I address where you were going with your original yeah, question? He, yeah, he couldn't figure out who Freddie Joe was playing. <laughs> no, I knew who Freddie Joe played. I just. <laughs> When I saw that, and I saw the name, and I'm—I mean, I'm literally at that point in the book where Stanley is, you know, goes from XO to the CO. Of course, mm-hmm. the moment Haldane goes down, and yeah, so I was just thinking, like, oh, that was the because I didn't know Lieutenant Mac. I didn't know his name. I never caught right. that kid's name. Well, they don't the call him series. that. They yeah. don't call him that. So, but then, so I just assumed he was 
the new CEO. So when I see Stanley's name come up in your dad's book, I'm like, oh, that's what that cat's name was. Then within a mm-hmm. day or two, I see, oh, you know, happy birthday to Freddie Joe, you know, who played mm-hmm. Lieutenant Thomas Stumpy Stanley on the Pacific. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. That's not who I thought it was. Who the heck was the CEO of K35 if not Lieutenant Mag? It should have been Stanley. So yeah. I see what they did there, and I can appreciate it more because it would be very – so the first time I saw the series too, it was very confusing. Because I sure. was so yeah. I, I was expecting Band of Brothers, different uniforms, different setting. Yeah. So it did take a little bit, and I did read Hugh Ambrose's The Pacific mm-hmm. prior to ever seeing the miniseries. I didn't know that probably didn't help your level of confusion. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. That was what I assumed the Pacific was. I mean, it was supposed yeah. to be that. So, um, but look, I've never had streaming services or HBO or any of that stuff. So I was never on, I mean, if it didn't come on like the TV, if I had time to watch TV, I didn't see it. I didn't get on YouTube and watch stuff, you know? So, um, I was kind of behind the the bar there. So yeah, I read Hugh Ambrose's uh, book and it was a picture of the cover from the movie, right? Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. the dust jacket. So I was like, Oh, this, I got to figure out a way to see this thing. But I never saw it until my wife bought the box set. I don't know how many years later. So I just, yeah, I I went by what I remembered from that. And I had the the DVDs of Band of Brothers. So, yeah, it was, I guess, disappointing as it it wasn't my expectation. But Henry, I think, makes a good point. And I think a lot of us were like that, too. This isn't Band of Brothers. It's not supposed to be Band of Brothers. It has nothing to do with Band of Brothers. Um, this is how the story needed to be told. And and I see now, I appreciate it so much more every time I do a little deep dive and every time I do watch it. I appreciate it more and more for those nuances. Kind of like that too. Lieutenant Mack and his character and, and the different people that kind of got compressed into who he was right, <laughs> really helps keep the light bright on Haldane. Yeah. Because to yeah. really mm-hmm. accurately, I mean, we all know Scott Gibson... We, I mean, he, dude, I don't know, I can't even say enough about how he portrayed Haldane, right? If you have that similar performance, and, and, and Lieutenant Stanley, like you said, was an outstanding CO on Okinawa, you already have so much confusion. You're trying to keep up with who the heck is who. You know, right. it's just all the guys in green for most of the civilians watching it, right? And the helmet. So if you, you have these two really outstanding company commanders, they're going to start bleeding together. Mm-hmm. So I maybe, and that's just that's just my assumption is maybe that was kind of done to you've got Haldane, you know who he is, and then you've got the fresh kid that just got his lieutenant's bars. That's not a bad guy, um, just a little green, uh, you know, at Pavuvu, and actually does a good enough job. I mean, you, I don't see him being a terrible commander in Okinawa. It wasn't like this guy was just trash. It wasn't like the winners to Lieutenant Dyke. Yeah, yeah. Right? there's there's a lot more in the unpublished stuff on Mac, and 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 you're correct. He was not a bad guy, and I think by the end, my dad even, and and the other guys too. When I speak of my dad, I'm speaking more collectively. There was a level of respect for him, but they were really leery of him too because by then these guys, some of them had been through Gloucester, certainly Peleliu. In my dad's case, he had just been through Peleliu. You know, they, they were not looking for a CO who's like, I'm going to put my K-bar, you know, and all that bravado crap. But 
they had to, as far as the Pacific Light, I go back to what I said. I'm telling you, I think the original intent, and if Bruce McKenna were sitting here, you could probably confirm this for me. They probably wanted to do at least two parts on Okinawa. Yeah, because they did you know, two parts they, on Peleliu. Huh? They, yes, because they did two parts on Peleliu, so it would have made sense that they would have done, because they spent so much effort getting that mud correct and the set design. Oh, yeah. I'm and, sure. I, and I think just budget started getting tight, and they just they had to go with what they had. But they had to have that Mac character because they needed those those disreputable or undesirable traits in an officer so that certain other things could be portrayed. One of them, it, yeah, it highlighted what a good officer Akak was. But, you, you know, you got to have the, the Mac the character. huh? The yin to the yang. It, exactly. You got to have the Mac character. I seen you up here. You're supposed to be observing then because you got to have Sledge saying, what differences make what weapon? And, and all that really happened. I mean, it really happened, as you will see. Jeff, I mean, you've read the book already. I know this isn't new to you. Um, but yeah, like Don said, the end of the Yang. So it makes, no, it makes perfect sense. Another um, fun character to look for, because when you watch the series, he's there, but you don't realize he's there until the P 48 wing when Gibson's behind the, the chicken wire. Oh, yeah. You're like, well, who the hell is this Gibson cat? And then you go back. Oh, he's the guy who shot the cow from the train, and then he's the guy who choked out the uh, sick jap at the. Oh, yep. And so okay, when boss. you go back and rewatch, and you're actually actively looking, you can see his change in personality from the way he acted on the train versus that. And you can, but when you're watching the first time through, you're like, I don't remember this cat. And Don, until you exactly. said that. I never even realized it. And yeah. then I'm like, wait a minute, that's the guy Don saw. Oh, wait, he's the dude who chokes the guy on And the he's the guy who oh, shoots. Oh, he's the guy who sh- Yeah. Yep. And Lecky's all pissed off that he shot. And perfect example, one of the, and I, it's hard to believe they did this, but it's not. Speaking of people who were left out, if you read A Helmet for My Pillow, one of Lecky's best friends other than Chicken and Chuckler was a guy named Red. And he's not in the story at all. He's not in the Pacific yeah. at all. Like the whole thing about him and hiding under his helmet, and they all played a joke. They kicked his helmet off and shot up at the Thompson, and he freaked yes. out. All that stuff about Red, and just I think it was actually the scene where Lecky is in Gloucester, and he's his boondockers get stuck in the mud, and he says, "Kill me." Would somebody be a good guy and kill me? Yeah. Either yeah. that was Chicken, or that was either Chuckler or Red who did that. I think it was. I think it was actually uh, Chuckler who actually said that he was he was mired down in the mud. But once again, yes. it was one of those situations where. The action and the story was more important than who it actually happened to, and right. so why not put it in this scene where Frenchie does what he does instead of creating four scenes to tell that story? Just okay, the story's the important part, not who said it. So we'll just add it to this scene mm-hmm. and and get the and get that across. Speaking well, of, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, you know, we we tend to kind of overlook the fact that they're they're finishing up the series too. They got to have I- Iwo Jima mm-hmm. on there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you had to have whatever like six minutes of Iwo Jima to tell that entire story to wrap up what Barcelona has going on. I mean, there was so much. I'll be honest, I don't know if I could have taken another Okinawa episode. Man, that was just that was so intense. Yeah, the civilian it, it consideration, was. man, that, well, that just. It, and, you know, when they go in the hut and the baby's crying and my dad holds the lady. I mean, I remember Bruce telling me how they were going to change that because that is, you will see. And you probably remember anyway from having read WTOB. I mean, that's not what really happened. And and he and I kind of argued about it a little bit. And But he said, no, trust me, Henry. We wanted to show your father's empathy more than we had. Um, and so here's how we're going to do it. Trust me, it works, you know. And, and oh, <laughs> 
Um, yeah. You know what that scene reminds me of? And I, it's, it's similar, but not all at all the same. That scene reminds me of the scene in Platoon where Charlie Sheen walks into the hut and the, um, Dylan's brother comes in and they have that conversation. It's very reminiscent of that scene out of Platoon. I, yeah, I know what you're, with, man, with it's Bunny. been a long time. Yeah, Bunny comes in. Platoon. It's very, it's very, very similar. It's almost like the, the, when they were writing a screenplay, did they read that I, out of your dad's book? I mean, it's yeah, very, I gotta be honest. it's Nobody different, but very similar. Her head apart though. Either. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying the whole, the whole thing up until that part, it's very, it's, it's very similar. Yeah. It has the same I actually, feeling to it. That watching it again and seeing that scene, I mean, it, it, it was beautifully shot. Yeah. I mean, when he lays the Tommy gun down and that ray of light is shining right on the Tommy gun and you mm-hmm. see his finger come off. The, it, yes. I, I'm, I'm a little surprised that that didn't get more notoriety yeah. in a good way. I mean, you know, it, it was just a really, I mean, it's a deeply personal thing for me, you know, because yeah. I know it pissed my dad off when that guy and, and, little tidbit from the unpublished stuff. My dad talks about the guy who shot that woman in a little bit more detail. Um, you know, as, as I bring into my manuscript, but, um, so it's so on the topic of books in the Pacific. You guys see the picture behind me. Love it. For those listening to the audio version, what, what is that picture behind me, Henry? That's pushing up into Guadalcanal. I'm actually, I've got my dad's copy of, the old breed, the which is the first Marine Division unit history, and I want to find that very picture. And I know we've talked about this. The picture, poor Sid's cut off because of my background and the way I was, Zoom okay, works. Okay, I was about to say I, I can't see Phillips in That's there. That's the picture where Sid Phillips is allegedly urinating, and he refers yes. to it in his book. You'll be sorry. And on the reprints, that is the cover. And so, for for most the part, history has said that that is, um. Day one on Guadalcanal after the the beach landings. As what what uh, platoon was Phillips in? Do you remember platoon? I'm not. He was H two one. Yeah, H two one. So he was company H company. Uh, second battalion, first sec- marine. Second time, first marine. Same marines. as Lecky. Same as Lecky. Yes. And if you actually Google Sid Phillips USMC, that photo will come up. And in the book, he says, well, how do people ask me, how do I know it's me? He said, because I remember I was taking a piss and everybody said, well, you're famous now. He said, what are you talking about? We saw the flash bulb. And then one of his guys asked the photographer, why would you use the flash in the jungle in the daytime? And he said, it, it'll, it removes the shadows from the foliage. And that's how Sid knows that's him urinating. Sorry, Jeff. The reason I bring that up, um, Henry, you're writing a book. We've had plenty of authors on. How important is... Accuracy in photographs in a book about history, as far as getting that right. Well, it's important to me. After we discuss this, can I show this yes, picture that, that's up and read the captions? That Sid Actually, Phillips please read on. it now because it'll go to okay. reinforce what all I'm right. talking about. So here is, and this thing's getting old, but all right, that's the same picture. Can you guys see the handwriting yep. on it? All right. That's Sid Phillips. This is my dad's copy of this book, but he sent it to Sid. Sid wrote these notes in it, and Sid sent his to my dad. I've told you guys that before. All right, so the caption to that photo, Don, the actual caption says, Relief moving up. Men of the 7th Marines take a break before going forward to relieve another Marine unit. All right, in his handwriting, Sid wrote, No, comma, H21, 30 minutes after landing on Guadalcanal, August 7, 1942. And then top of the next page. 
I was told somebody had just taken our picture and, quote, Phillips, you're going to go down in history taking a leak, end quote. And what was the original caption under that photo that your father said was wrong? Well, Phillips said it was wrong because yeah. my dad wasn't going. Yeah, but but it, it says, relief moving up. Men of the 7th Marines take a break before going forward to relieve another Marine unit. Okay. The reason I ask is I'm reading, I'm staying with the boys, John Bazelon's story. Yeah. And um, his unit didn't land until September 18th. But we know that photo was taken on day one. Mm-hmm. I'm reading through this book. Page 185 has that photo. And the mm-hmm. caption underneath it says, Sergeant Bazalone's 1-5 Marines on the trail to Makinaku. So they have completely misidentified that photo. Now, I doubt the author did that. I'm sure it's probably somebody at the publishing house, the editor. Someone decided to put that photo in this book and state that that was the uh, that was one five, and that was Bazalone's group. So he's saying Bazalone was in the Fifth Marines. It just says Sergeant Bazalone's one five Marines on the trail. Yeah, that'd be to First Battalion Fifth. First Battalion Fifth Marines. Well, because he was on Guadalcanal, he got reassigned before he went to Okinawa after the war, the drive. But the fact is, they didn't land until September eighteenth. No, but yeah, yeah was Seventh Marines. Uh, well, he was under Chesty Puller in Seventh Marines. Okay, so right, the, Jeff. Well, I can tell you because I looked. I thought. Uh, well, okay, go yes, ahead, he was, under, to... he was under uh, Puller because he has a lot in here about Puller. Um, and Puller was not 5th Marines. He yeah. was 7th Marines. And then Puller took over 1st Marines before Pellet. Yeah, so the photo is wrong in two ways. It says Sergeant Bazalone's 1-5 Marines on the trail. And so I was like, I was like, I doubt the author did that. Somebody at the, the editor or the publishing just threw that photo in there for whatever reason. Yeah, but I mean, it's a... Don, I'll tell you, and our buddy Dave Holland is not a big fan of that book. Yeah. Well, it's a great photo, but and I'm enjoying the book, but like I said, one of the things that caught me off guard is uh, it's written in the first person, but we know mm-hmm. Bazelon didn't survive. And, and so, like, okay, I suspended my belief. I'm, I'm, the author's doing a good job. I'm believing he just got a shitload of information from the family, and and we're going to take everything that's word, but then you get to a well well publicized photo like that and it's completely misidentified like okay well is everything else in here cool (laughs) so that's just yeah it's just one of those things that bumps you you know it's like i'm taking everything at its face value in here especially the you know a lot of stuff that's being portrayed in in the words of baslone and especially when it comes to chase and tail and all that stuff but (laughs) but then when you get to a photo like that that's well documented that it's on the first day of, you know, D-Day and who it is. And then, like, well, there's Bazalone's fifth, you know. It's like, mm-hmm. but I'm, it's not taking away anything from the book. It's just interesting that something like that would end up in this book. I'm, I'm just surprised they're claiming Bazalone's in the 5th Marines. Well, I mean, that's that's a pretty Not big... in the book, but just in that photo. So that just goes to show you. I don't okay. think the photo was submitted by the author. I think somebody at the publishing house put it in there. Maybe they're trying to balance out the pages. I don't know. Somehow yeah. that photo got put in the book and it was misidentified in two different ways. And it's just like, okay, come on. I think it's extremely important because, I mean, from like living history reenactor perspective, guys are picture thumpers. Yeah. Right? It's on this picture. Look. And, okay, great. However, what, you know, think about what, like, that's a perfect example. Uh, the caption of it says this, but mm-hmm. actually, and you know, we've had um, we've had Scott Freund on here before, and you know, he's a perfect prime example of somebody got fed up of you know wanting to watch a documentary about Midway, 
and you know they're showing footage from you know kamikazes off okinawa or oh this is the mm. battle for tarawa like, yes no that's no way shape or form tarawa <laughs> like not it's not even close to tarawa so well, here's the big red one know. landing on d-day and they cut the films of marines on guam <laughs> it's like what right the hell? It, yeah i mean it happens right i mean yeah. it, it, it yeah. that stuff happens oh, big all time. the time so yeah i think it's really important because a picture's worth a thousand words like they say and how many people sit there and read these books cover to cover they just look at the pictures and look at the caption like oh okay that's that and, and it's in a book it must be right and, you know, you guys have read enough and you've been around it long enough. And I hope all of our listeners are kind of the same way. Like you have to take every book at face value. And I don't mean to discredit any memoir, yeah. but let's face it, that war is is this big. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how everybody, you know, how people perceive things, how you know, Don and I can watch the same hockey game and get two different things out of it. He's going to see it in, in, in a different light than I'm going to see it. And we're both going to try to explain it to somebody else. In a different way. And so say, look, I, I was there at this hockey game, and, and this person's taking notes, and what I said to them is only what how I saw that. That's your perspective. Perfect example. Perspective. Thank you, JT Rocker, who is joining us on YouTube. I was wrong. I was said that it was either Chuckler or Red that said, be a good guy and shoot me, and JT Rocker pointed out, actually, it was Hoosier that said, shoot me. So, perfect example. Even my memory of seeing that series and reading the book. It was Hoosier that actually said be a so good in, guy. So in the book, it was Hoosier who said that? Uh, yes, and not okay. and not uh, Lecky. So it was See, he- I, I just reread Helmet like last summer, and yeah. I didn't yeah. – I got to reread it. Because you had Hoosier, you had Chuckler, you had Red, you had Chicken. Because, mm-hmm. you know uh, – And J.P. Morgan's made up, right? Yes. Um, yes, if he you, is a made-up character. Yes, Joe. He's a made-up character because the guy that he was based off of did not want to sign over his lightning rights to HBO. I saw that in an interview. Um, it was somewhere I was watching a video. I may even have been about the making of the Pacific. It was somewhere they were talking to uh, – I saw I saw a video somewhere on YouTube. It was talking about Basilone and his friends, and the guy who did who was one of Basilone's friends who helped – he just for whatever reason didn't want to sign over his likeness rights and so they said okay you're now and and the fact that he used jp morgan which i think was dumb because like that's the guy who made jp morgan chase is that who that is the famous banker it's like why wouldn't you choose a more generic name not one that's you know jp morgan that's a huge name in the financial world yeah really is it's like oh wow jp morgan uh, JT Rocker said it's like the beginning of Ken Burns' The War. The Second World War II was fought in thousands of places, too many for one accounting. To Henry's point of, or Jeff's point of it being such a, you know, small view of a big war. And so uh, appreciate JT coming in and uh, shout out to Brian Larkin too, who was uh, talking in the chat. So, um, oh, that's my cousin. We're loving having the uh, chat here, and now that we're centralized yeah. and we're just streaming directly to YouTube now. Everybody can come and join in the conversation. So thank you guys so hey, much for yeah. joining them. That is cool. I like having that. Yeah, super cool. What's up, Brian? Thanks Jeff, for, you want- man, he's, a, he's a big fan. He's a big fan of the show, and he's got a really cool, uh, and I think I've shared on the show before. So Brian's Brian's father, you know, he's Brian's my cousin, so Brian's father married one of my dad's sisters. Well, his father is named after his uh, his father's uncle, who was killed at the opening stage of the Battle of the Bulge. And I think I shared a picture with you guys mm-hmm. um, that I had somebody colorize. So, yeah, he's got a really cool uh, to link to World War II. Um, I want to get your um, – go ahead. I thought you were done. Go ahead. 
No, no, go ahead. No. I want to get your opinion on a living history display item. So as you guys know, I've talked about this in the past. One of the things I was super happy to get with was an original fixed bail front seam helmet, yada, yada, yada. Got my plastic Hollywood liner, Hollywood Holly liner in it, blah, blah, blah. A couple months back, I came across another fixed bail helmet. The, the liner's not correct, but one of the bales is missing. Now, I bought replacement bales, and I know a guy who can weld. But I thought, why not just sew a chin strap on the one bale that's on here, leave the other bale broken off for the time being, and use this as an example of why they got rid of the fixed bales, because they tend to snap off. Instead of restoring it temporarily, just tie one strap on there and, and take it to living history displays along with the other one, showing how easily those things broke off and maybe even use it as a raggedy ass marine impression with having just the one strap instead of taking it over to my welding guy and having him weld a new bale on there what do you think nothing wrong with that at all i mean you know it's a great educational tool i I think you know you're really reaching a a smaller and even smaller population of people that you know about a fixed bale helmet um you know so i think that's I think that's really, that's kind of an interesting thing. It's either that or I'd have a little table display of a chunk of plywood or some wood from a ammo crate, cut a hole in it and have your steel pot upside down. And there's a kitchen sink. Yeah. It's your display too. It doesn't matter if you've got a chin strap or not. Well, one of the things I like to do because I have different impressions, especially because I have so many damn Marine Corps haversacks, is I like to show the differences, especially the Marine Corps is well documented. I like to show the differences in haversacks from the beginning of the war to the end of the war when materials got more uh, materials got more um, strict, well, r- more um, harder Rationed, to get, and scared. and more importantly, when it comes to the haversacks, they need equipment done quickly. And so, when you look at the early haversacks, they got the nice flaps that fold in, and by 1945, it was basically a potato sack that folded over with some straps on it. And since I own that stuff, I like to show people here's how it was at the beginning with the they had you know leggings a perfect example they used to have the nice brass more expensive claps on them by the end of the war it was just black metal just get it done get it produced and get it out there and showing that it's it's a way to offer a little bit different display opposed to everything else people have i like to show the difference between you know the because people don't think oh web gears web gear first aid pouches first aid pouch no not necessarily Marine Corps had a different pouch, different color. Their web belts didn't have U.S. stamped on it. And if you have it, it, it just it's one of those things I, I like to point out to people. And so I thought it would be kind of cool, too, to have here's the fixed bail helmet. And the reason they got rid of the fixed bail helmets, guys would sit on their helmets. The bales would break off. That's why they went to swivel bail. And here's an example of a fixed bail helmet where the bale's missing, which is why they ended up going to swivel bail after a while. Just like the reason they got rid of the holly liners and went to the you know, the compression liners because they found out quickly that, oh, yeah, paper doesn't hold up in humidity very well, especially when you're doing amphibious landings. Right. Uh, yeah, and, you know, I think it's always been interesting, too. Marine Corps impressions are always uh, – there's got to be something that a little, you know, odd or unique about it because they had to be such scroungers, you know. Mm-hmm. I, so I, I think – I wouldn't say if I saw, you know, a, 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 Marine, a living history display you know, of a guy portraying a Marine – with an army pistol belt or with an army first aid pouch on there, something like that. It's not something that's like, oh, that's wrong. No, nothing wrong about it. They were stealing everything they could from the marine, yeah. from the army, right? So, a, a marine impression, you can easily make the case to have one or two pieces of army gear on there, but it doesn't go the other way around. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know, like well, you, you can't have twenty ninth <clears throat> infantry division 
you know, with a Marine yeah. Corps piece on there, like, uh, well, the kind of weird. And the Marine Corps is even more, like, okay, if you're doing a Guadalcanal impression, you got to have the white T-shirt. You can't have the green T-shirt because the green T-shirt didn't come out until Peleliu. And you got to have, you know, this canteen flap cover because that canteen flap cover didn't come out until this mission. Oh. you got to have this. Yeah, for, they had four canteen yeah. covers. And but Guadalcanal. I, think- I can't do a Guadalcanal impression because I don't have a 1901 Springfield. I only have an M1 Karen. So the Marine Corps stuff is really hard to pinpoint a certain you mission. stole it from the Marines. Well, well and my dad's HBT cap. The guys, we've yeah. talked about his HBT cap is an Army pattern, yeah. I believe. Well. The early Marine Corps ones were. They, they didn't weren't, have the EGA on them. Which it I was didn't the know. Army. I didn't know that until you pointed out. It wasn't until uh, they put the EGA logo that they moved the stitching over because the stitching was in the, in the dead middle. And so once they adopted the silkscreen EGA, they had to move the stitching over to make room for that. But I never right. realized that until you pointed out, Henry, I think when Jeff, uh, I mean, Jeff, when Henry's on like the third, fourth time, I had my P44. You're like, no, that's the P44. The original ones were all the same. It didn't matter if it was Navy, Army, Air Corps, you know, the mechanics. Well, the mechanics had a longer build. They had a little bit different, but yeah, all the rest of them had the same hats on. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's what makes Marine Corps impressions so cool, I think. I mean, hey, you stole it from an Army dude or, you know, whatever, because you had six Marine divisions fighting alongside 22 Army divisions in the Pacific. I mean, they crossed paths so many times. They're out there getting all kinds of stuff, swapping whatever, Not to mention off. And the George F. Elliott got sunk with all their gear on it, so by that time... And all our ass wipe. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Don, you brought up something interesting. I didn't realize the green T-shirt came out at Paleo. I thought it didn't come out until 45, really, Ewo. Yeah, it may have been... I think it was Ewo. Um, you're right. It was Ewo because actually you can see in the series when Basilone goes to Pendleton to, to start training, that's when he's wearing the green T-shirt. But, yes, and it makes sense because you're in the jungle. you got this bright white shirt on before you get sweaty and dirty. You basically have a nice white target right over your <laughs> juggalo for a, for a sniper. But, yes, yeah, so early on in, like, you have to have the white the white shirts. And, and of course, I you know, I have the, the ones – if you get the authentic ones, they have the real big necks on them, so you can fit right. them over your helmet. <laughs> they have their super Is that wide. Why they did that. I, I'm speculating. That. I don't know. I spec. <laughs> I speculate because it only makes sense if you think about. It. They got these big white ass necks on them, and let's look at the trousers. Everybody thinks the Navy's the ones with the quote unquote bell bottoms. No, if you look at HPT pants or wool pants. My hypothesis is the legs are so damn big, so you can put your trousers on with your boots on. Because if you think about the, if the trouser legs were smaller, imagine how hard it would be to put your pants on with your boots on. And so yeah, why, I, why would you I, need I to leave your boots on? Why I thought, I thought, and maybe, and and you—that's a real good, that's a really good assumption there. I don't know. Um, maybe one of our listeners can help us figure that out. But I just thought it was literally the ease and and mass production of from the textile perspective. The t-shirts weren't made like they are now. Yeah. Uh, from way the way I understood it, um, they were kind of made as one piece, so they weren't made in they weren't made in like halves that joined with seams, you know, underneath you. and around. So uh, that's was what I thought, and it was just kind of you didn't have that that tapered, you know, catered neck. And same thing with the trouser legs; you just cut a rectangle. Well, I knew <laughs> the know? I knew the trousers was one length fits all, which made sense. Once again, you're right. trying to produce a, a mad gear. We'll make a few different uh, waist sizes, but the length, here's your pants, go get them hemmed. We're not going to make 34s, 32s, 30. No, right. we'll make them all one length, take them, get them, cut them off, and get them hemmed. 
which makes sense. Right. But uh, if you've ever tried, you can put your trousers on with your boondockers or your service boots on oh, because the pant legs absolutely. are so damn wide. I mean, yeah, I guess if you walk around in your skivvies and your boondockers, I guess it makes sense. Well, even but, even the army stuff, yeah, the wools you can put yeah. on with your, you know, if you're trying I'll to be do- honest, a tapered leg would have been a little bit more efficient because you've got so much material. A lot of times uh, I would use, and I know they didn't do this. I don't care, but um, I, I would take a, I would take a deal of duct tape. You know, I'd cuff the leg and pull, fold it over and duct tape that and then put my leggings on. So I wasn't constantly dealing with them coming. This is when I was, when I was on the battlefield running around yeah. because in about 10 minutes, you, you look you know, like an RAM, <laughs> you know, I still wanted to have a nice uniform appearance for the rest of this show, this performance for live people. So I, I would, I would tape my, my trousers down. And if they were tapered, you wouldn't have so much material trying to tuck a bell bottom into, you know, a, well, it's a funny a thing. You say that when I first put my, before I started reenacting, I, like I said, many times before my first impression, what logistically was a huge mistake was Marine Corps. Cause at the time no one was doing Marine Corps stuff. I was the only one there. But the first HBTs I got, not knowing any better, I got off of eBay from a company in China. And the damn pant legs were tapered. They were literally, it looked like I had skinny, and I, I was like, why would you taper these things? And so I returned them and, and found, quote-unquote, stovepipe legs, as sometimes they're referred to. But I couldn't understand why the Chinese knockoffs just, you know, the buttons are fine, the uh, the patterns are fine, but literally the legs were tapered, and it looked it looked ridiculous. You American, you have big reg. <laughs> we tape our reg. You wore HPT, we tape our reg. But, and yeah. we just got shut down. <laughs> no, nah, that's my other podcast that uh, YouTube cancels all the time. <laughs> you get down there, and you tell me if you see creases on these trousers. Yeah. <laughs> Come over here and tell me if you see. What's up, Dennis Blocker? Dennis Blocker's on here, too. Your boy Dennis (laughs) is on here. Dennis Blocker's checking in. Yeah, Dennis. I talked to him earlier today. Man, he's such an awesome cat. God, I love that guy. He asked a question. What was the Army division that the Marines actually respected and called them a Marine division? I think it was maybe on Guam or was it Saipan? Do you guys know the answer to that question? Was it the 164th? I'm not sure. He's asking. They so. called him the 164th Marines. So that well, had to be a, a that was a on Guadalcanal. Yeah, yeah it's a regiment. Yeah. yeah, not a division. That's interesting. <clears throat> They're probably not on the Saipan dock. So that's where the big Smith Smith controversy was. No, I'm just so, reading the question as it was written. But yeah, yeah. So that makes me think: could it could it be the could it be the second infantry division from World War One? Because um the the two id patch it's the second largest army division patch and Don, you can probably google this pretty quick so the 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 biggest one was the one i wore right first cab that's that big that big goofy norman shield yeah see. <laughs> um you know first cab division is a huge patch but second id was was second only in size to that and it the uh the face the the profile is general lejeune it's actually General Lejeune on the Second Infantry Division patch, and so I don't know if that's Second what Dennis ID is patch. To. Yeah, Second Infantry was, Division. Yeah, that was that was made in his likeness, supposedly. The Native American. The Native American face. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Damn cultural appropriation, even back then. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the Native American patch. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But yeah, see if you can see something there. That's just I came across that years ago, and I it had something to do with, um, you know the the, the joint uh, operation 
um, for Marines and Army during World War One, and there was a, I think after the war they adopted, they adopted that likeness to him, or maybe it's just a rumor. I was never in the Second ID. Nicknamed Indian Division due to design, blah blah blah. Beach, yada yada yada. Yeah, I'd have to look off the air and spend a little more time, yeah. but yeah. You said you had an artifact or two you wanted to talk about, Jeff. Is that the case? Oh, yeah. If we wanted to do a little show and tell real quick, yeah. I'll uh, I'm gonna go to my footlocker here. And um it, it just, just prompted so um just cruising eBay the other day. I try to stay away from it, but yeah, every now and then I pull up eBay, which some... you know, my eBay is US Army Air Corps World War Two search <laughs> the search title, right? And golly, have you guys seen the prices on original A2 jackets? No, I'm afraid look, to know. But I can imagine. Because I, I want an A2, and I just don't think it's ever going to happen. Well, I mean, you know, these are named and painted and, and all that great stuff. My Mine is, I, I know who it belongs to. It was given to me by the guy that, that wore it in World War II. It's not painted or anything. It doesn't have the, the, the stitched, you know, leather name tape or anything on there. But... It's original A2, and this guy flew B-17s in World War II. You can still see the lieutenant's bars on the epaulets. So I thought I would pull this out. I got two foot lockers, and neither one of them look as nice as yours. They're literally being used for storage. Well, that's that's my display foot locker. That, that's my living history. Everything in there is, I mean, everything from my baseball mitt to prophylactic kits and everything, you know. That's for, for skin, a, you know. That's my, my 8th Air Force Bombardier foot locker display. But, um, yeah. Here it is. I mean, it's a little little rough um, around the top of the zipper. Could you put me on one you've worn before? No. I, well, oh, that's maybe. another one. Okay. Could you put maybe. mink oil I mean, on I, it, or is it so old that that might do more harm than good? It's yeah. It, it's pretty well that that shoulder. You can see he had it on a hanger. Oh yeah. Hanging <sighs> hanging in his attic, you know, for a couple centuries. Um, but you know, like I said, you can still see the uh, the lieutenant. Yeah, on the uplet there. Um, yeah. How I cool have... would it when he gave it to you? Was there like, did you reach in the pocket to see if there was a scrap of paper from a briefing or something? Oh yeah. So how cool this... would that have been? Oh, I know, man. And, and, yeah. Oh yeah. He would have given so... his left nut just to have a Wrigley Spearmint gum wrapper in there. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, any, I'd anything. frame that, man. Anything. I know, and it's just it's. It's so stinking cool. It does. It fits me really well. It fits me better than my East. So I have an Eastman, you know, A2, and, and I know uh, Henry knows about that one. That's the one I wear all the time, but it's yeah, a 44. So, and it's so, on you. It's a size 44. It's got a little bit right. extra at, at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, you know, watching 12 o'clock high all the time, I want, I want an A2 that fits me like Paul Burks does. <laughs> right like well they were close fitting jackets i mean you know well a lot of stuff were. was and like all my jackets i gotta get 44s because of how tall i am i'm six foot five but they just drape off me and i look like i i look like i've already lost weight from battle but it's like i want to i guess i could probably get them brought in a little bit but because of how tall i am my uniforms just drape off of me because i gotta get them long because of my arm length if i ever get an a2 i figured i'd get it from eastman jeff so that yeah. your perspective on that would be i mean i'll i'd out i will because especially after masters man they're gonna be just oh i know so but you know 
the 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 Paul Burke, and if you guys, if listeners don't know who I'm talking about with Paul Burke, you know, I, I, so I'm a big 12 o'clock high fan. I love that series. It only ran for three seasons. I've talked about it here before, but go back and look. You know, you can find these episodes on YouTube for free. Paul Burke's got a great looking A2. He's the main star of the series, and but yeah, I mean, it fits him like like the Fonz, right? Yeah. Like like Fonzie's leather jacket. But uh, talking to um, Eric Korean actors and some other Living History guys, they're like, hey. Um, go, you know, really kind of study some of these pictures. Yeah. I mean, some, some of the jackets, they seemed like they were a little too small in these guys and others, they seemed a little bit too big. So no, they were not custom tailored at all, of course, to you, mm-hmm. but it makes more sense to have a little bit more because, you know, you're wearing it over top of so many other things. Mm-hmm. You do not want a tight jacket. Right. You do not want to be restricted. It looks good when you're cruising in your Jeep, you know, going out to Piccadilly for the evening yeah. or the, the weekend or whatever. But up in that aircraft, you you need that extra room for everything else. So it makes sense. So I've worn mine. You know, I don't have the flight coveralls yet, but, you know, so went ahead and, you know, the chocolate shirt and the wool pants, the May West over top the flight jacket, stuff in my pockets. Like, it fills up pretty quick. Yeah. And I'm not wearing any, like, cold weather gear either you know i don't have the blue bunny on underneath or anything like that so um honestly for from a uh utilitarian perspective the one i have is probably the size it would need to be because you know it's not a fashion statement i've jeff i've read and well i'm talking to both of you i've read as i'm sure you have too that from contract to contract there was variation Mm -hmm. in how they draped and some were you know just quality of leather some were boxier you know Right. Well, just like right. the Army HBT camo, it's super big. And when you go to at the front, they say, hey, this thing is super big because it's supposed to be a add-on to put over your M43 or M42. I mean, these things are baggy because they're meant to – they were a shell. They weren't a jacket. They were a camouflage shell to put over your other gear, and so that's why they're baggy. And I never realized right. this until I saw a screenshot from Fury. Um. I can't remember his name. The Hispanic guy who drove the tank in Fury. What the, the character? Yeah, was. I know who you're talking about. He actually oh. had an HBT camo shirt underneath his jet, his M42, and you don't really notice it in the movie. But if you look at screenshots, or you watch the uh, they do making of Fury interviews, and he has the frog skin HBT, the HBT underneath his um, P42 jacket. Throughout the whole movie, you just don't really realize it because the filters they put on the uh, the cameras, hmm. Hmm. which I thought was a cool little tidbit. Um, did I ever show you my original pith helmet? No. Hold on, I'll pull that up real quick since we don't want to show and tell. Obviously, Holly liners are super expensive, and like if you see them cracked and trashed, they're just super expensive. So I have my plastic version, but I know what they should look like and feel like because my pith helmet, which I posted pictures on Instagram and Facebook this week, and I've had this for a while, it actually has the Holly stamp in it. So this is the same material that the Holly liners would have been made out of, but this is the Holly Company pith helmet. And same reason I was talking about the paper liners disintegrated in humidity there's the same reason i won't wear this at an event as cool as it looked to be in my p40 you know p42s with this on but because this is an actual cardboard holly liner 
Piv helmet <laughs> turns green because of the the background, but you can see the stamp in there. It says Holly Company. Hmm. Uh, that's the same exact material that the uh, the liners are made of. And I I was talking to somebody yeah. before, and they said they basically went to a thrift store and they found a brown T-shirt that same color, and they that's what they coated their plastic Holly liner with. But yeah, this is my Holly Company Piv helmet. And um, it's going to turn green because right. of the green screen, but that stamp in there actually says Holly Company. It has a little palm tree on it. it has a, a pith helmet, a palm tree, and like the sun shining down. No, it has a sun and uh, clouds raining down on it. And it says the Holly Pro- Product, St. Chapel, Illinois, or St. Charles, Illinois. And so this was, nice. I got this off eBay a few years back. Most of them have a khaki chin strap. You don't see a lot of them with the leather one on there. So, I'm just I'm just trying to go back through and see if I could kind of justify what I was saying earlier about the the second infantry division. Um, I, I'm I'm coming across a few different things, but it looks like um, the second infantry division, as known as the warrior division, was activated October of 1917 in Bourmont, France, during World War One, making it the first U.S. Army division founded on foreign soil. It's also the only division in U.S. military history to be commanded by not one but two Marine Corps generals, including Marine Major General John A. Lejeune, affectionately known as the Old Indian. Ah, there you go. Uh, and yeah, and um, it is there. You know, they call it the Indian Head Division. Uh, I think uh, in 1933 is when they redesigned and and. Uh, kind of decided on this is the shape these are the colors and the design and lejeune had a uh, played a part in the design of the patch that we know it as today now 90 years later um so even though the division was founded in, in 1917 the patch that we know today wasn't officially uh, adopted till 33 and he played some part in uh, affectionately knows the old indian so that that's what i mean it doesn't necessarily look like him but it was it, it represented gotcha major general lejeune that commanded them it's very cool uh, yeah so I, I i thought that I, I knew there was something about it so i don't know if that's what dennis was was referring to or not i mean the the army division that the marine corps respected i would say gosh every division i mean we always have gotten along since night you know <laughs> 1775 i don't know what the big deal is you know i'm looking at right, some right, henry <laughs> well i mean my article in world war ii magazine touched on that yeah we were talking. It's a bad rap in the Pacific, but my goodness, I mean, fighting men were fighting men, and um, you know the, the Marine Corps uh, had to do it with less. You know, they they accomplish more with less sometimes. And yeah, that's that, where that pride comes from, and that, that's know. a big John McManus thing. You know, which yeah. kind of inspired me to write that article for World War Two. And the point of it is, there was interservice rivalry, of course, but. When the push came to shove, the two services fought together and, and did pretty well, all things considered. Absolutely. You know, you were talking earlier about how, depending on the supplier, the uh, product, that some of the jackets had a different cut when it came to the A2 jackets. I'm just looking at a screenshot, and here's an original photo of, um, well, there's five guys, but one of them's got an M42 on, but there's there's uh, four pilots and two of them's A2's jackets are a darker brown, and the other two kind of have more of like a uh, A2 or the uh, service boot reddish tint to it. So just, you know, packed in, once again, depends on the leather supplier and this and that. You know, things d- weren't exactly the same colors. They didn't match. And that's kind of – and being nowadays the way we are, that's kind of like 
one of the things you just have to get over with. I remember when I got my Eisenhower jacket, I was so happy to finally find an Eisenhower, a reproduction Eisenhower jacket that fits me. And it's more authentic this way, but when you first put it on, you're like, well, that sucks, but the color of the wool is not the exact same shade as my wool trousers, but that's how it would have been because you had so many different supplies of wool coming to so many different vendors and all this stuff. You know, your HPT shirt didn't wasn't the exact same tone as the trousers or your wool shirt wasn't the exact same tone, and that's just the way it was. And it's actually more authentic, but we're so caught up on modern-day stuff that, oh, well, why isn't the exact same dye color? Nope, because hmm. that's not how it was. Right. Well, you know, Air Corps jackets were horse hide for the most part, and the Navy and Marine jackets were goat skin. Yeah, makes sense. The all the 22 all the horses that got eaten. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So that kind of led me to put this book behind me here. Gear up. This is John McGuire's uh, flight clothing and equipment. You know, for the Army Air Forces during World War II, and and I mean, this is a great. There's some wonderful color pictures oh. in this book. Um, but yeah, you know, there's, there's a whole chapter of course on, on, on the, on the A2s and the differences in the ones that served in the CBI as the ones, you know, in, in England. Um, it, this is just, it's such a well done book. I actually met a guy, he's a, he's an army air corps reenactor, met him in Dallas a few months back that, um, he owns one of the painted A2s that are featured in one of John McGuire's books. And, mm. and for folks who, who don't know, John McGuire, uh, was a World War II um pilot this is this is a picture of him here when you when you first open it up so this guy not only kind of knows his stuff but he was he was there um and so yeah these books are just they're so well done i mean there's a lot of times where you'll you'll see actual photographs and then you'll see a good color photograph yeah. of a mannequin you know so you really see what he's talking about so i, I own that book man it's a, it's a good yeah, i love it I, I love this one between this one and, and bianchi i think it was, it was a bianchi that did uh yeah, I think it – no, it wasn't Bianchi, but I, I have another one on U.S. Army Air Force uh, gear and clothing. I mean, they're kind of my two – you know, I'm a big – obviously, big 8th Air Force, you know, uh, impression. <laughs> so, um, uh, oh, we're putting Henry to sleep. Uh -oh. I can never – No, you're not. I'm just tired as hell, but you're not putting me to sleep. <laughs> I can never understand why the 782 gear book for the Marine Corps is so damn expensive. It just blows my mind how damn – the price tag on that – Was that Harlan book. Glenn's book done? Um, or did somebody else write that? That's Glenn. Yeah, yeah, Harlan Glenn. Glenn. And mm -hmm. it's and it's not like these are limited. They're 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 printing new ones all the time. Like I'm on eBay right now. It's like the going rate for that 782 book is between eighty and hundred and sixty bucks. It's like, yeah. Oh, here's one for it's a big it's here, a big book. Here's one for a, a cool sixty six dollars free shipping. But it's like, damn, how great are those photos? <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, it, 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 I don't know. I guess for me, it'd be like one thing if that was a limited series book and there was like, you know, 200 of them. But the fact that these are all saying brand new, which means they're still under press. It's like, that's a chunky, you know, that's a big price tag to pay for that book. But I guess it's worth it if you if you want to make sure it's, you got it all down. But Yeah, it, it it's it's worth it, man. I mean, that's, that's where, I mean, even if you just want to put together, um, you know, uh, a jungle first aid kit, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, look at these shots here. Yeah. Um, I mean, guys, I you know, you I'm not a reenactor, but I just have a passion for this equipment and these uniforms, and I love these books. Yeah. It tells you what all these different stamps mean. You know that you That's saw cool, on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what division they came out of, just based on those stamping. Um, <clears throat> what blows my mind is when you actually 
put that 782 pack together completely, how the suspenders wrap around the top and the bottom. All the different leggings, the coloration, the mm -hmm. variation of the leggings. Yeah. yeah, fun fact, easiest way to know the difference between Marine... Oh, here you go, perfect example. Leggings are leggings, right? Nope, Marine Corps had six nope. hooks, the Army had eight. I mean, just stuff, just stuff like that, you know, you can tell. I feel like it was more than eight. Uh, I, I believe Golly. it was six and eight. Or maybe eight and 12. Yeah, I know Marine Corps had yeah, less. Yeah, it's a maybe big eight and difference. 12. Yeah. Yeah. Substantial size. Hey, yeah. Gabe's checking in. Gabe says, how are you guys doing? We're doing well, Gabe. Happy to hear from you. Yeah, but, I can't uh, wait to talk smack to him at the next Army-Navy game. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, we can do what you're reading. I think we've all been reading the same book for the last three weeks, so we're uh, no reason to really... I mean, I'm still reading. Uh, I'm staying with the boys, and and uh, Jeff is still slogging through uh, with the old breed. And Henry, are you still in the same book? Or are you, you yeah, got no, I am. I'm still reading Battle of the Bismarck Sea. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm slogging through. I mean, that, that sounds like a negative connotation there. Like, Thank you, Jeff. I wasn't going to say you it because he's I would the host. I would slog through like a tale of two cities. No, well, right? slog that because, be you know, all the mud and on, on Okinawa and all that, you know, it's. But anyway. Yeah, I can feel it. Yeah. I can feel it. I can smell it. And I can appreciate it. I mean, it's like reading this book now, guys. I mean, I, I you know, I know Don said he's read it a bunch of times. And I've said this before. I read it once before WTSP came into my life I'm reading it again and let me tell you it's like from it's like watching an old like Popeye cartoon the first time to mm -hmm. like a 4D experience now. And, yes like, and that's what I was going to say every word is yeah he your father paints a visual picture with his words and and the perfect example is that is how he explains and they show him falling into the the that particular foxhole in the series but they don't show the whole importance of that one marine but in the book he's talking about how that marine and that foxhole becomes like a timepiece they know how long oh, yeah. they've been out there yeah. by the level of decay in his body they saw on the day yeah. he got shot and by the time they pulled out of there he basically the skin was you know the decay they had been out there so long that that one particular body that he ended up falling on when he slid down the hill yeah, yeah it's <clears throat> It's page 269. I know it like the back of my hand. And like you can visually see it in your head as you're reading it. He it paints a picture. Yeah. That was It was it was a it was a Japanese soldier you're talking about. The the body no, it was a dead it was, marine. It was a marine. Cuz it was it was You're talking the about the, you're talking about when he was digging a foxhole. I'm talking about when he slid down the hill and into the foxhole and then he had all the maggots on him and he's picking them off. Oh. You're yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. when he's digging a foxhole like no, oh, yeah. there's a chap here. No, I need to no, I told you no. to dig here. Yeah, that's what I think Jeff's talking. No, about. I was I, I'm still I haven't gotten no canal yet. I'm on oh, okay. Paleolu and that he uses that line where it was like this biological time clock yeah. of watching this rotting Japanese body that was well, yes. exposed. That's in Paleolu. Oh, that's okay. when they're starting to get up around Hill 140. Right, yeah. The, the biological time clock every, every yeah, time they then, went by it. Well, yeah. Don's talking about outside of Half Moon Hill. Well, I got confused. You're both Shuri. right. Jeff was right about right. the biological time clock, and then when he slid down the hill, it was the Marine uh, body that he landed in. His hand went right, through. Right. <sighs> yeah, it's a lot. That's a no reason to read that book quick, but no. there's every reason in the world to read that book. Twice. Read it. Definitely twice. Not so you got to read it right after the other. Let it let it linger. 
that that book lingers in your mind regardless. I mean, it's just so well written and so detailed that you that's the type of book you're you're thinking about it for like a month and a half after you read the last page. It's just such a fantastic book. But um, I think that's just going to about wrap it up. Um, Henry, do you get anything coming on the pike? Um, yes, I was on the Commander's Voice with Ben Powers last week. He's going to have uh, George Lowe's Jr. and me on at some point really soon. He wanted to talk to me first because he's talked to George many times. So that that's coming up. And also, I'll just update you guys very quickly. Uh, I got an email from one of the Library of Congress people nice. uh, about just continuing that conversation. So, the, you know, no major developments on that. Just the, the conversation will continue on that. So that's all I'm gonna. Ah, no worries. That's that's just a. Uh, I'm just watching the. <laughs> I looked down at the YouTube feed and like what's going on there is different because there's a delay. I'm like, huh? But anyhow, it's distracted. Jeff, you're uh. You got some things coming down the pike possibly too, right? Yeah. Also got an email today uh, from a gal who works with the uh, commemorative air force uh, at the headquarters up there in Dallas. Uh, She was out at our blue bonnet air show, you know, uh, last weekend, about a week, week ago. And uh, she's with their media team and, you know, gave her a business card and and our squadron uh, commander there. He, you know, introduced her and I, and he said, Oh yeah, Jeff's our museum director. And living history and all that stuff. And he also has World War II podcasts and just, yeah, you know, just a kind of quick conversation about some of the things that I do. So gave her my business card and she emailed me today and said that, uh, the, the, the CAF has a kind of like, uh, like us, a weekly show, they call it Warbird tube, uh, CAF Warbird tube. And, uh, I think it's, uh, it streams live every, uh, Wednesday night, I believe. So I'm booked to go on to talk, um, you know, the museum, WTSP, movies, living history, all just everything I do here. Um, and I think I'm booked on the 19th of April. Fantastic. So that's a Wednesday coming up. Yeah. So really excited about that. Uh, you know, CF is a is an international organization that, that is dedicated to keeping aircraft from World War II flying and airworthy and and continuing to do air shows and it's just living history at the highest level and what they do is amazing to have over i think 140 aircraft within the caf and squadrons all over um you know so um really excited about that for sure and if you want to support the show and you're a business owner but you're business is a product that's available worldwide obviously it's kind of hard to sell worldwide podcasts to a regional audience when it comes to advertising but if you want to help support the show and you want to you know possibly get some advertising maybe you sell some kick-ass coffee or something or or whatever you, you online services or whatever maybe you make world war ii uniforms uh for reenactors if you want to help support the show email us at mail call at i think you'll be surprised at how uh how welcoming our advertising packages are because we're getting to that point where we would like to bring on some advertisers. And so um, if you want to be one of the first and you want to support the show that way and we can uh, help you by supporting your product and having our listeners support your product, obviously, once again, it makes more sense if your product was something nationwide or worldwide because obviously if you're an electrician in Chicago, we'd love to have you, but that's going to greatly reduce your potential return on investment relying on you know people who live in Chicago. So if you have a product or a service that 
can be obtained by people throughout the country or possibly the world, and you want to support the show and uh, buy some advertisement, please email us at mail, call it WTSPWorldWar2.com, and that's WTSPWWII.com, and I will be more than happy to, to get with you, and we'll work something out. And as we said before, Patreon, YouTube, T-shirts, stickers, um, it's the way to go. And right now, there is a plethora of conversation going on in the YouTube channel. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you, um, JT. Hopefully, this is something that we can continue each week. And if you guys are listening to the the audio version of this, just 9.30 Eastern Time every Monday, if you want to ask us a question, here's your opportunity uh, to ask Jeff a question, Henry a question, myself a question, and we'll answer it in real time. And even if you can't join in live, Send us questions to our email. We'll read them, and then you can listen to the answer when you regularly listen to our show, however you prefer to do it. And we don't say this much, but if you listen to us, especially on iTunes, um, Spotify really doesn't have a a way for um, written comments or suggestions or reviews, and I don't think Google does either, but I know iTunes does. If you listen to us on iTunes, please you know give us a rating, write a comment on there. It goes um, more comments, more ratings. iTunes will suggest us to people when they're listening to other history-based podcasts. They'll say, hey, people like this, also like this. And so that goes a long way, too. So you want to support the show that way and you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, just you know, highlight all those stars and give us a quick line or two about how great we are. And um, you can support the show that way. But on behalf of myself, Henry and Jeff, we want to thank each and every one of you. And uh, we're loving to see the show growing as it is. It's taken a while, but we're getting there, and we love it. We love each and every one of you guys. But uh, until next week, on behalf of myself, Henry, and Jeff, thank you guys, and we'll see you on Monday. This has been a Digital 410 production.